to do this morning. We're going to try to cover most of 18. Uh, then March is already here next Sunday, uh, five Sundays in March, and uh, we'll end uh, the Gospel of John at the end of March, which then will lead us to Palm Sunday and then Easter, and then after that, kids will be out of school, and all the parents will be going crazy because they won't let their kids, and it's just the rhythms that we always find ourselves in. Uh, so if you've, you haven't been with us, we're stepping out of the upper room, finally. Uh, it, they've been in, up there probably just for a few hours. We've been in the upper room in the Bible and these sermons for probably three months. And so it's about time we're finally moving on, I guess. Um, and so finally they're out of the stuffy room and they're going to be uh, walking into the final few hours of the life of Jesus, at least on this earth. And uh, we have a lot to cover, so I'm going to go at it. We're going to read a little bit, quite a bit of scripture this morning, uh, but you'll, you'll, be, you'll be good. So let's, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kedron, where there was a garden, and that's how we say it in West Point, Kedron which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, always knew the place for Jesus often met there with the disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, yeah, this is powerful, came forward and said to them, who do you seek? If you, you underline in your Bible, you should underline that one verse. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Amen. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And then Simon Peter did what he do. Having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Anas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, so did another disciple, evangelist brother John here. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter now stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also, uh, you also are not one of the men's, this man's disciples, are you? And, and Peter said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, 
I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had just cut off, asked, didn't I just see you in the garden with him? And for the third time, Peter again denied it. And at once, the rooster shall we pray God I thank you for your word we thank you that it is the ultimate authority of how we live and I thank you God that the authority of your word is truth and we just read it God help us because so many times I'm looking for a word, I'm looking for a word. Just how much of a knock that is to the word of God. Because you've just spoken. Give us a hunger for your word. And so God, but let us not only just be hearers of it, but also doers. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. There's one thing that I just want to draw out of this text. In fact, this is my, my outline. Um, in fact, what I'm about to tell you is probably going to seem contradictory to what we just read. But what I want to just pull out, and if you'll just allow me to kind of um, just kind of flesh through some of this, uh, it, it should make sense. But something that I, that I see when I read this is that King Jesus is sovereignly in control. If I were to just see one thing, and that's, my one, that's it, that's my outline for you, all right? So if you take notes, that's one thing that I want you to see, that Jesus is sovereignly in control. Amen. Never does he lose control in Scripture, in his life, in his suffering. Neither does he lose control with us. Now, before I get to that point, I want to make a few observations that are happening here uh, within this story. If you'll notice that first verse, when it says Jesus crossed over the brook Kidron. Now, a brook is kind of like a stream. Now, Kidron is a familiar term because if you know your Old Testament history, uh, it's, it's a place where a lot of sorrow happened. It's a place where betrayal happened. Kidron was a brook that led out into the valley of Kidron. And so this was a place that was often met with sorrow, betrayal, and hurt and chaos. And so I thought it was interesting because I, I've read this passage numerous times and I always just kind of bypass the book, the Brook Kidron part because I don't think it has any significance. But if you kind of look at this, you would see a lot of parallels going on in the Old Testament up until this point where Jesus here is crossing the Brook Kidron. This is a little stream and this is outside of the gates of the temple. And this is probably a filthy ditch type thing where a lot of things kind of flowed into it. 
probably a, a, a ditch or a stream that you wouldn't want to drink from. Now, now, this has been mentioned a few times, in particular, if you remember the story of King David. You remember King David in 2 Samuel chapter 15. King David is faced with probably one of his greatest obstacles of his life. His son, Absalom, has kind of gathered up a coup to kind of take over David's kingship. And so the Bible says that David, King David, is passing over the brook Kidron. And as he's passing over the brook Kidron, the children of Israel were weeping. Why? Because King David was just betrayed. Now, I think there's a little parallelism here with the life of King David because Jesus Christ is the greater King David. Again, he's at this point at the brook of Kidron, marked by the same pain of betrayal. And here he is, but he won't suffer the same defeat because King Jesus will defeat the chaos and the betrayal that happens at the brook Kidron. There's another significance to this brook is that as people would kind of, so this is Passover week, all right? Now, we know that there's probably up to a couple of hundred thousand animals being sacrificed. That's a lot. And can we all be honest? That's a smelly situation. It probably reeks up in that place. So where did the blood go? Where did the blood of all of these sacrificed animals go? Because they had to go somewhere. So here's what would happen. In the temples, there were these channels, and the blood would go to the channels, and the channels would be released in the brook Kidron. Here is Jesus Christ crossing into the same streams where there is perhaps blood of the sacrificed animals. And here's what I see when I read this, that these animals' blood and the sacrifice of animals could not atone for the sins of the world. But here's King Jesus conquering the sins of the world, treading on the blood of the sacrificed animals because ultimately his blood was going to be enough for all of the sins of the world. Now, why is this significant? You may ask. I'm glad you asked. It's a great question. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 40 says this was actually going to happen. He prophesied about this very event, and he says this. The whole valley of the dead bodies in the ashes. Jeremiah needs a hug, by the way. And all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore. So here's what he's saying. This brook that has been marred with pain and sorrow and betrayal and chaos will one day be marked by the glory of God. Now that'd make a charismatic shout, but y'all, we in the wrong crowd this morning. Can I encourage you this morning? You may feel like you are wading through the bloody, dark streams of Kidron. But Jesus Christ has conquered that sorrow for you. And he has walked through it on your behalf. And not only does he conquer this brook of suffering 
and of betrayal. I mean, have you ever been betrayed before? You ever felt the weight of sorrow? Jesus did too. But not only did he experience, he conquered it. Look on in verse, that's just one verse. We got a lot of work to do, so I better keep going. Now, Jesus finds himself in the garden, and, and John doesn't really spend a lot of time in the garden of Gethsemane here. So, so we, we find where Judas, this is where we're going to get to our point here. Judas has gathered a band of, like some gangsters. He's gathered a band of, like, some rednecks. I mean, they are packing heat. This reminds me of, like, the scene in Shrek. No one's ever seen Shrek except for Jude and, and Quentin. You all know the scene I'm talking about? We're like, they're, they're coming after him. They got the torches. They got the weapons. I mean, they're coming after the big, ugly, green monster. I'm not insinuating Jesus was a green, ugly. Okay, anyway. So, so this is what they And the, the thing that, that, that surprises me in the story of Judas, of course, when you're talking about Judas, nothing should really surprise you, is why did Judas, knowing that the mission of Jesus Christ was not a militant mission, why would Judas have to gather up a band of just raunchy dudes to go attack Jesus? Judas knew that. He knew better than that. But here is an incredible scene, which most people would have thought that this band of army was almost up into a thousand people ready to take over Jesus. But I want you to see the narrative of this story that tells us that Jesus Christ was in control of this particular situation. You know how I know this? Amen. Who approaches this rough crowd? Who comes up to them? Who initiates the conversation? It wasn't Judas. He's probably behind. He's probably a coward, just kind of probably hiding behind these jokers. Jesus approaches them. He says, who are you looking for? In his West Point dialect. Who are you looking for? And then they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says something so remarkable. You got to see the sovereign control and the power of Jesus Christ. He says, I am he. And then, foof, they like fall on their face. I mean, like this is some kind of power that you and I don't walk in. I introduce myself. If they fall out, it's probably because they're running away from me. It ain't because I got some kind of power over them. If I introduce myself, somebody's just like, oh, okay. Like big whoopty deal. And that's fine. All right. I'm not angry about that. Maybe. But the kind of authority and power that Jesus walks in, and you've got to see the control that he has, even in his arrest, Jesus Christ is controlling all of it. And they think they're going to control it, but Jesus is like, I'll have none of it. I will even control my own arrest. Isn't that crazy? Man, that's like some power. Jesus is controlling his arrest. He's controlling his enemies. And good Lord Almighty, I've got to encourage us again. The enemies of your heart, the enemies waging war against you, Jesus does not lose control of even those. Now, here he goes, again, answers, and it's clear that Jesus is trying to do this peacefully, right? 
Jesus is trying to just do this, like hand himself over peacefully, it would seem. But Peter, bro, this pack and heat in the form of a sword, got to try to put matters in his own hand as if he has forgotten that Jesus is in control. So what does Peter do? Well, he do what he do. He tries to take over the situation. <laughs> Y'all got to know Peter's bad now. He sees, uh, he sees hundreds of brothers who are carrying swords and weapons and torches that can light this brother up on fire. And Peter's like, oh, I got all of them. <laughs> now, let me tell you something. That's a type of macho-ness that I don't really walk in, and I'm not ashamed to say that. And let's be straight now. Don't you look at me with your judgmental eyes. You don't walk in that macho-ness neither. You got some brothers with like some, some pitchforks and some swords and like some, some crazy weapons. Man, I am running, and I don't run. But Peter, boy, he's like, I got this. Looks, I know the odds are stacked against me. Pow! Cuts off the dude's ear. But Jesus is even in control of that. In other gospel accounts, what does Jesus do? Puts it, thank you. Puts that ear, slaps it back on. I don't know if he slaps it. That's in my mind. He's got that ear. Pow! Puts that ear back on that joker. And he rebukes him. He rebukes Peter. Why does he rebuke him? Because Jesus is in control. And he's even looking at Peter. He's like, I will have none of this. I've got this. Now look at the second section of this chapter because it gets really interesting. And so they finally arrest him. They bind him up. And this is the first time that Jesus is physically assaulted. Because if you'll know, like, when the crowds, up until this point, when the crowds would try to arrest him, what did Jesus do? I mean, he was just like, poof. I mean, he just disappeared. I mean, I don't know how that works. I mean, I wish I kind of flowed in that kind of power, that ninja power. They're just like, Pow! where'd Matthew go? I don't know. I mean, that's just kind of awesome. But not this time. And that's, and that's incredible. Jesus was in control then. And now he's in control again in his arrest and before the trial, and they take him to Anas. Look at verse 15. I'm going to read some of this again just in case we've forgotten what it says. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Oh, Peter. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servant of the officer made charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also went with them, standing and warming himself. Now Peter had been warned by Jesus, Peter, you will deny me three times. I don't know if Peter is suffering from some kind of brain memory loss issue but he just forgot. Like literally, Jesus just told him this. This wasn't Jesus telling him this a few years ago. Je they just had this conversation, like a conversation I have with my child. Like did I not just, did you not just see my mouth moving and hear the words through your brainless skull? I told you this, yet you act like 
I'm not even in existence. Here's Peter with the same adolescent brain, forgetting that Jesus just told him. And who is he challenged by? Nora, <laughs> a little nine-year-old, ruthless, red-headed girl who's what, going to attack him? What if he says yes? What's she going to do, like, like go barbaric on him? Have you ever thought of that? Like, why is Peter afraid of, like, a little child named Nora here? That's not her name. That's just in my mind. That's how it goes. Why is Jesus so scared of a little child? What's a child going to, like, pack out? Like, like, ha-ha, I'm packing too. What's your cow? <laughs> is that what the child's going to do? I'm digressing way too much. Here's Peter. It's his chance to prove Jesus that he was wrong. But Jesus ain't never wrong. Always in control. Peter says, I don't know him. Notice the trajectory of Peter in this story. One moment he's right next to Jesus. The next he's off in the distance. In just a matter of minutes, he's denying him. Like, what say you? Like, where are you at with Jesus? Are you like in your sorrow and your time of kind of like chaos? Which, let me give Peter a little credit. All right, I don't know how I would react either. I'd probably react in a very similar fashion. But in our times of chaos and, and agony and trauma and pain, like, where's Jesus? Where are we? Are we like trying to stay with Jesus during those moments? Or are we just kind of like Jesus is just off in the distance? I don't. I can't get this thing figured out. Or are we just like Peter, and eventually just like you know what? Jesus don't care. Let me go back to the trial here because you're going to see that Jesus is even in control of the trial. This is a sham trial. It was a perfect call. It's a sham trial. <laughs> Nobody got that. Okay, that's my own, only political joke I'm allowed in a year. All right. The high very terrible joke. Anyway, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the, in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those. Like, like provide a witness, Jesus is saying. But the high priest doesn't want justice. They're not interested in justice. They're not interested in a fair trial. They just want Jesus dead. Verse 22, when, the, when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if, if, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? They bound him and sent him up to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of those disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, And I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it again. And there was the rooster that crowed. And Peter's like, I don't know what you are talking about. And that is a lot of scripture that we just read. But my brothers and sisters here, you have got to see this this morning. That Jesus is in control. And he's in control of everyone. 
in control of Judas. Jesus told Judas he's going to betray him. In control of the mob. The mob couldn't even take the authoritative power of God when he identifies who he is to them. Jesus initiates the arrest. Jesus is in control of the mob. Peter? Oh, come on now. Peter's the worst at controlling himself. Who's controlling Peter? Jesus told Peter that you will deny me three times. Like he's in control of everyone in the story. Not only that, but he's in control of all of the details. He's in control of everything. When it seems like in this story, everything is falling in place, it is not. Everything is not falling out of place and going to hell in the handbasket. Everything is not going in chaos. Everything, on the contrary, is aligning itself how God wanted it to align. And it just seems like this story just gets crazy really fast. Like Jesus cutting off, I mean, not Jesus. That would be awesome if Jesus done that, but he didn't. Peter cutting off the dude's ear. You know what Jesus says in one of the other accounts? Jesus looks at Peter's like, bro, I could have called down 72,000 angels, and I've got them at my disposal, but I'm not. <laughs> Why? Because Jesus is clearly in control over his arrest, over his crucifixion. And if we can find comfort in this, if he is even in control over his chaos, over the crucifixion, over his arrest, then, dear friends, he's in control of our chaos. He's in control of our lives. Like, it just seems like this story is going so wrong, so terribly fast. And that might be the story of your life. That may be the story that you are here this morning where you feel like all things are just crumbling around you. Find rest and comfort in the fact that you are not in control. Jesus Christ is in control. Like Peter, man, come on. You think he's, like, who are we going to trust? Peter in this story? Jesus Christ is in control. And here's what this means for us. If Jesus Christ is in ultimate control, here's what this means for us. Then we can trust him. We can trust that he is good. We can trust in Jesus Christ. Now here's where we can breathe a little bit this morning. Unless you got some kind of virus, don't breathe too hard. But here's where you and I can breathe this morning. We can stop relying on ourselves. You can stop trusting in yourself. You want to know the, the you want to know the number one person who is the enemy of your soul? It's yourself. Here is Peter kind of leaning in on his own understanding, leaning in on his own ways. Like, I got this, Jesus. I'll take care of it. But Jesus is like, no, I've, I've got this. I'm in control. Is Jesus Christ in control in your life? And are you trusting him? That's the question when I see this. If the scripture is so plain and so clear that our sovereign God is in complete control, can I trust that? Moreover, how do I trust it? And here's what I would press. Like, I love you, all right? Like, we've almost got 10 years together. That's a long time. 
And I love you enough to say this. Like, like, do you, like, trust him? Like, are, are you trusting in yourself? Like, how reliable are you really? Like, I'm not hating on you. I'm hating on me. I'm pretty unreliable. All right? Sometimes. Like, I can't even trust my own heart most of the time. <coughs> Who can we trust? We can trust our God. And he's painting this picture for us of his sovereign control. And the question that arises out of this is that can we trust him? Now, how do we trust him? And here's how I would ask the question better. Like, how, how do you trust God? Well, how can you trust him if you don't know him? How can you trust God if you're not diving into his scripture? How can you trust God if you're not trying to learn more about him? How can you trust God if you're not leaning into the word, the authoritative word of God? How can you trust him if you're not knowing him, if you're not understanding Amen. him? Yes. We can trust him because all things work together for the good of those who love him. Not for the sinner, but for those who love him. We can trust him because what the enemy has meant to harm us, the Lord has meant for our good. We can trust him. We can trust him in the streams and the brooks of Kidron because he conquered the brooks of Kidron. And we can trust him in the chaos of our life because he conquered the chaos of the crucifixion. And in his sovereign control over that crucifixion, he brings forth life to us that we get to participate in. Do you trust Jesus this morning? That's the question and the weight that you must feel when you're reading through this story. Do you trust him? Let me pray. Father,